welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast. I'm John Cribs. And I'm Chris Funderberg. How are you today, John? Or I guess, you know, I shouldn't ask how are you for we're recording this because we just got news today that Stuart Gordon, one of our favorite filmmakers, has passed away. So you and I decided to just get together and uh, record a little memoriam of him something to that effect just off off the cuff right yes we uh called together an emergency meeting of the pink smoke podcast because uh this is one of our heroes this is one of our boys you know i yeah like to call him one of the patron saints of the pink smoke i mean someone who we've been fans of for a long time whose work we've written about and celebrated for so long and uh it's hearing you just now say that he passed away honestly was the first time i've heard it out loud you know, it's all go, it's all over social media, obviously. And yeah, you know, when 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 my wife consoled me, she just said like, "I'm really sorry. I, I just saw. You know, we didn't actually say come out and say." You didn't say that to me either. You said, "Oh my God, this one really really hurts." It's because I don't want to accept that Stuart Gordon is dead. It's really it's a hard one. And it's what a, you what you texted me, I think, is really true. And why uh, I'm so upset with this is you said you really felt like he had one more great film in him and i i I don't know if he had one more great film in him i i just felt like i was going to get another stuart gordon movie you know exactly whatever it was i felt like i had no sense that he was at the end there's some filmmakers that you see them wind down over the course of a of a decade and and you sort of don't have hopes for anything else for them but he was such a weird interesting filmmaker who always excelled at a small scale and always did his best work outside of the system that even as things slowed down for him, you still felt like he was at home with what he was doing. You still felt like nothing about his career had changed enough that you couldn't imagine him coming out with, you know, Edmund too, you know what I mean? Or something like that. Just something uh, out of left field uh, that you wouldn't have had any idea what, what is going to be like before you saw it. And you know, when so there are a few filmmakers that we really love that their careers definitely have changed a little bit and I don't hold out hopes for. You know, people go from making movies for studios to uh, the independent world and it's a rough transition a lot of the time. Um, or they go from one sort of filmmaking style to another or genres change below their feet, the world changes below their feet. And I never felt that way with Stuart Gordon. I felt like he was right where he was supposed to be his whole career. Yeah, from his first film to his, God, to say it it just sucks to say his last, he just had this energy that was very consistent, you know, that just felt like he could go out there and make a movie that felt just as vibrant and fun and interesting and different as reanimator no matter where he was in his career uh so while like you said some filmmakers you know definitely have like a well i guess they're semi-retired now or i guess they we can't expect another masterpiece from them at this point in their life gordon i just felt even though he hadn't made a film in 10 years it felt like he could just jump up and do another one and have and 10 years act yeah exactly and 10 years seems like so long like i can't believe it yeah. Like, I can't believe it's been over 10 years. It's been almost 13 years. Mm-hmm. And that seems crazy to me. I just, you know, when some of our other favorites, like, uh, like say, Toby Hooper passed away, I felt like I saw that coming in some way, that 
that it just didn't catch me by surprise in some fundamental way. And this caught me by surprise. It just didn't feel over with mm-hmm. Stuart Gordon. It just which didn't is, feel over. Which, I mean, just to, to speak to, to that, that energy just existing in him, he had a Kickstarter campaign where he and Jeffrey Combs wanted to take the Edgar Allan Poe uh, one-man show that they had done together and turn yeah. it into a movie. And that Kickstarter, I think, was unsuccessful that never got the funding. Um, so that, and that, that's like the last time I remember him really trying to mount a production with something like that happens with most filmmakers. You think, oh, wow, I guess there's no audience for his work anymore. I guess that's it for him. Even after that, I still felt like that's, well, Gordon's not done. You know, he'll, he'll, yeah, he'll, that's he'll bounce point. back from that. He'll well, have something co- else. Yeah. His yeah. career was also always so outsider-ish and, makeshift it just always felt like his entire career he was always cobbling something together against unlikely odds you know that it just Mm -hmm. always felt like he was pulling something together out of left field that didn't seem like it had the financial support it should behind it it didn't seem like it had the audience interest it should behind it, it just, or critical support, and he still was able to just pull it together somehow and do it. And so that's why it felt like he'll do it again to me. Um, Obviously, you know, he's the director of The Reanimator. This is what he's most famous for, his first film in 1985. This was an incredibly influential cult one of the cult movies of all time cult movies i think it's fair to say just as far as how weird it is how it was really uh one of the big uh foundational hp lovecraft films and hp lovecraft has become a cottage industry in some way i think uh in the modern era that you can trace back to stuart gordon and reanimators like the big load star for him. But you and I had the idea tonight to not just uh, talk about reanimator or talk about him in a general way, but I thought we could go through and each pick a couple films of his to highlight uh, beyond reanimator from beyond reanimator. <laughs> um, and so we're each going to pick uh, three different kinds of films. We're going to pick a film that we think is essential viewing then we're going to pick a film that has personal meaning to us in some way. And then we're going to pick a, uh, um, overlooked wild card, uh, sort of, uh, oddball pick, uh, for the, for the last one, just a movie, uh, that we want to highlight from him. Yeah. And, Cause he's such an unexpected director. I think it's a good idea. I think it's a good format to, because we had spoken before and reanimator is still a movie very much worth talking about, you know, yeah. it's still just as fun as it was, all those years ago. Um, but we kind of decided like, let's try to pick ones that people who only know reanimator or mainly know reanimator might not be as aware of, but yeah. I will say this one thing about reanimator, just in terms of our personal friendship, Chris, um, in college, I came down to your house in Pennsylvania to shoot a documentary in Lancaster County and about Amish drug dealers. Right. And we were friends obviously at that time, but walking into your house and you had a stack of videos by the TV and right on the top, it was Reanimator. And I think that was the moment I thought, this dude knows what he's talking about. You know, yeah. like this guy has, has it right. So that was freshman year in college. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was, I, I know the exact copy of Reanimator you're talking about. That got played down to the, to the bones. That was, you know, um, he was a filmmaker that like, from like 
about like age 18 to 22, like I lived Stuart Gordon, you know, he was, mm-hmm. he was with Joe Dante and Toby Hooper and Argento. That was, that was an era when those were like the filmmakers I just lived where I was just constantly watching Stuart Gordon movies in that time. It's funny to think about him too, in terms of that, because I was thinking, and another reason that, you know, you just think that he could always be making films the way he wanted to, he doesn't really easily fall into a group, you know, he doesn't, he, you know, pretty much invented the full moon idea, right? The whole, the the whole sort of, kind of mapped out the whole sort of idea of like these, you know, Lovecraft horror movies and tiny doll horror movies and things like that. But I don't never considered him part of like Full Moon. Yeah, and I never considered him really along other horror make, horror filmmakers. Well, he gets called a master of horror and that sort of thing, and lumped in with with uh, you know the Wes Craven uh, types from that same era. Now I can't think of any Toby Hooper, Carpenter, sure. Yes, exactly. But horror movies are just a fairly small portion of his career i don't even think if you went through that it would be even half of his movies are horror movies i mean depending on how far you want to stretch the definition of horror you know is stuck is edmund as king of ants horror movies uh, i don't think so i think if they hadn't been made by Stuart gordon i don't think anyone would think to categorize them that way um definitely not and and, and horror movies too or in his film career in general was a second act for him because he had been a renowned theater director in Chicago during the yes. 70s and early the 80s. Organic Theater Company, one of the first people to stage uh, David Mamet's, I think the very first people to stage David Mamet's sexual perversity in Chicago. Yeah, he's part of that Mamet group, exactly. Yeah. So um, he's coming from that background. Um, so getting into movies and into horrors especially was a new you know frontier for him. So that wasn't really the beginning of his career. That was sort of like the second thing that he did the second big thing that he got into. So to even consider him, you know, one of the founding horror directors seems like, well, no, he just sort of, you know, fell into that after his already very prestigious career. Yeah. Yeah. As he could like cobble it together somehow, like he was always working in whatever genre and on whatever project uh, that seemed like an avenue that he could pursue. You know, mm-hmm. it didn't seem like, you know, he was hellbent for leather to do horror movies the way a lot of horror movie directors were. And he also didn't seem trapped in the genre. You would hear people like Wes Craven complain about how he wasn't allowed to do anything but horror movies. And then, you know, you'd see Music of the Heart and you'd understand why none of his other <laughs> movies are getting made. From, from the beginning, he, you know, very quickly leaves the horror genre behind uh, in some way. Uh, not leaves behind, but he doesn't get stuck in it in that same way. Yeah. That yeah. he does a few horror movies early on and then immediately is bouncing to different avenues with it, uh, with his filmmaking in different genres. Um, yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah. So it's funny to think of him in terms of the other guys, not to say that he is different or better or anything like that, but I, and and I don't want to say he wasn't just a horror filmmaker, you know, but there's just a lot to him. He reminds me of the old school Hollywood auteurs. He's more a Jacques Tournay, uh, uh, Henry Hathaway than he is a, um, uh, a Hitchcock 
you know, who just does one very specific thing over and over again, or a Billy Wilder, those sort of very solid auteurs who make the same kinds of movies over and over throughout their career. You know, I think that that if you think of them like Jacques Tournay, who did some of the most phenomenal horror films of all time, but also did great Westerns, spy films, everything across the board. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that that's more what he is than um, somebody who exclusively did horror movies. Definitely. And he studied film. He was a film fan himself, you know. Um, he popped up recently on a um, Blu-ray release of the Roger Moore film, The Man Who Haunted Himself, uh, a documentary where he yeah. talked about the film. And not only did he have great and insightful things to say about that movie, but he had, uh, sitting on his desk as he was talking, he had like the Truffaut-Hitchcock book and like yeah. a, another stack of other, you know, film-related books that he'd obviously been like boning up on the stuff he wanted to talk about in this movie. <laughs> you know, he's someone who obviously loved cinema and loved delving into uh, the classics, you know, in the old films. Extremely weird Roger Moore movies. <laughs> loved delving into them. Yeah, well, exactly. So let's let's get into this thing because I love to talk about some Stuart Gordon movies. Great. So let's do let's start with each of our um, uh, essential viewing picks. Uh, this is the movie that if if you're watching Stuart Gordon, you have to see these foundational works. Uh, for me, and these are both uh, beyond Reanimator, as we said before. Reanimator is not going to be any of our three picks. We feel like start with Reanimator, uh, end with Reanimator. That's a great one. But if you want to go from there and aren't sure where to go, or you just want some recommendations to round it out, because he is all over all over the place. Um, for me, my essential pick is From Beyond. To me, this is his best movie. Uh, I love Reanimator to death. This one is another um, H.P. Lovecraft adaptation that's even better to me. It's even weirder. It's even more gross. It's even more unpredictable. It's even funnier. It's even stranger. Everything that Reanimator is, this movie, even more upsetting, even more emotional, um, even more sexually perverse. Everything that Reanimator is from beyond is the same, but ramped up several (laughs) notches. And not in a way where you just feel like, okay, we got to outdo what we did before, so let's go crazy. It feels more like a natural progression, like Reanimator is him finding his footing, and then this is him scaling the mountain in some way. Um, And it's about a scientist who develops a machine um, that allows people who are in like the range of the machine, it sort of sends out these like psychic vibrations. Uh, It hits their, their... penile gland and allows them to see um, uh, alternate dimensions around us, all of the sort of strange interdimensional creatures and weirdness um, swimming in the atmosphere around us at all times. Um, and the resonator. The resonator, yes. And it's Crawford Tellinghast is, well, it's Dr. Dr. Pretorius is the... Um, is the the guy who's invented the machine. And Crawford Tillinghask, played by the great Jeffrey Combs, uh, an actor who's deeply associated with Stuart Gordon, who played Dr. Herbert West, the reanimator in The Reanimator. Uh, Crawford Tillinghask, another uh, great 
archaic HP Lovecraft name that he refuses to update, even though the setting is updated to the modern day. He keeps these crazy old names. And, um, Tilling Hass goes to a psychiatric ward where he starts getting treated by a doctor played by Barbara Crampton. And from there, she's interested in finding out about this resonator. And they take a trip back to Pretorius's lab and activate this machine. And, and uh, they are uh, joined in this by because uh, Telling Hask has been committed to a uh, to a psychiatric institution because he's a dangerous person. They're joined by a uh, police officer played by the great Ken Forey of uh, Dawn of the Dead fame, and they all go back there and get into uh, bananas shit. Is that <laughs> fair to describe? It's just um, it goes it goes from beyond from there, and I would just say. Any kind of horror film that you are, if you're a psychedelic horror film, if you're a gore hound, if you like sexually perverse horror movies, if you like seriously philosophical horror movies, if you like gothic horror movies, if you like any kind of horror movie, there will be something you can enjoy in this film. To me, it's one of the the very best horror movies ever made. I couldn't be effusive enough in my praise of this. One of the favorite things I ever got to do when I was programming a, a repertory theater for, for a while was locate and screen a 35 millimeter print of this. It was delightful to see this on the big screen. It was a nice print that hadn't been shown that much and, and had very little color degradation. And this, all of the crazy colors of this movie, if you saw, um, Richard Stanley's recent Color Out of Space, you get the sense that a lot of its palette and visual ideas are indebted to this film in some way. And um, what else What else can I say about it? If you like horror comedies, it's a very funny movie. They're delicious, is one of the things I quote. Uh, uh, it's delicious. Uh, as much as anything, um, it's just a... a great movie it's a great great movie yeah speaking of delicious because i have this movie on the background on mute while we're talking right now um you would know this probably chris because you're something of a, a foodie or you know you know about oh, no. well you know about uh, the what ken free bakes the kind of puffed up looking things do you remember that that he serves to them what about them? They look delicious, and I'm just wondering what they are. <laughs> uh, that I don't know. And the the I'll bet Murray Funderburg knows. I bet I bet my dad would know. I bet my <laughs> dad would exa- immediately be identified. They're like meat pies, aren't they? Aren't I they like no little idea. chicken pot pie things? They, no, I don't have it in front of me, so I'm just going from memory. I can't tell what they. Are. I can't tell if it's a vegetable thing or it could be a yeah. I don't know a pie sort of thing. It. it I thought it great. was like Australian meat pie type things. I don't know. I now no now somebody's going to gonna out, pull though. it up and it's going to be like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> like big cauliflower. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I, I, I was there at the screening that you, um, that you arranged. It was a part of a 24-hour film marathon. So it played at, what was it, like 2 a.m.? Was that when it played? Yes. I think it was, it might have played at 4. Uh, wasn't, it was, that, wasn't that far back because it was a, pa- it was a packed theater. Yeah, um, but it was an audience that's not like a horror audience, and it immediately became apparent that most of the people there had no idea what they were going to see. 
You yeah. know, this is all these were surprise screenings, so you didn't announce it until right before the film started. So these people yes, didn't know had, what they were in for. We yeah. had three theaters running at the same time. It was this movie theater I programmed their 10-year anniversary. So we did a 24-hour film screening. And we programmed all three theaters at the same time in two-hour allotments. And I would uh, nothing was announced in advance. And then at the start of each two hours, I'd say, theater A is this, theater B is this, and theater C is showing this pick which theater you want to go to and the people would amble between the theaters based on my descriptions of the upcoming films beware his descriptions yeah and all you, all i you guess i really out. sold people on from beyond plus <laughs> it was packed i remember all you did beforehand was send out hints these really obscure clues and this was before criterion collection was doing the same things with their upcoming schedule yeah, um the but, schedule uh, was revealed in clues exactly that was fun but um but anyway the point is most of the people I could tell right away did not know Stuart Gordon from, you know, uh, anything. And they, they didn't know yes, from it beyond. Was like a suburban, older, very yeah. artsy art house type of thing. So it was fascinating to see this film for the, however, six or seven time for me with, a, with an audience and see that initial reaction of, you know, incredulousness. You know, everyone was kind of like, what is this? They kind of weren't taking it seriously. They weren't really sure of the tone. And then see them kind of get into it and realize it's okay to laugh at this movie. You know, that this movie is funny. Yeah. And then by the, you know, 40, 50 minute mark, every single person in that crowd was into it. Yeah. And they were having a great time. And I think that's just like how you could sum up this movie's feel to people. It's just, you know, you kind of sink into it and just kind of let it envelop you. And yeah. by the time you do you're just going to have a blast. I mean, it's just that much of a movie. And I agree with you. I think it probably is his masterpiece. I just think it's so perfectly realized. I think that Combs and Barbara Crampton are even better in this movie than they are in Reanimator. Crampton in particular, uh, she plays a bit of just a a damsel in distress in Reanimator, and she gets a real role in this one. Yeah, absolutely. She gets to do a lot of stuff. She gets to be seduced by the Resonator. She gets to turn bad. Uh, and then she try gets to the break away from that. Yeah. yeah, everything. And it's beautifully shot by Mac Alberg, who shot a lot of Stewart's movies and sadly passed away a few yeah. years ago. Gorgeous uh, it's a great looking, looking film, film as, as many of his films are. Um, but not just like a really well shot, but like a lot of cool surprising colors. Like you said, sort of like the Richard Stanley movie recently. Some just really cool uh, experimenting, I think, with the cinematography in this. Um, and it's so funny and exciting and sexy. Just, yeah, it's a great horror movie. Absolutely essential. And it features uh, Ken Forey in uh, tan underwear at one point. So it looks like he's running around naked and fighting off a monster. And to me, it's always the precursor to uh, the big uh, naked fight in Eastern Promises. That's what it always looks like to me. (laughs) Underwear that gets drenched so you can see everything. Yes. Yeah, God bless Ken Frey. Yeah. Um, a legend in his own right. Obviously. Yeah, and who didn't get uh, a lot of interesting roles beyond this one. It's it's not great to see Ken Frey get to do something and not just show up and be like, hey, we got Ken Frey in our movie, you know, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate how he's used a lot of the time. Um, my essential Stuart Gordon film, and it's funny that I chose this one because literally a year or two ago, this would be my underseen pick for Stuart yeah. Gordon. Um, only recently, I feel like, has this movie really caught fire and got notice. It took me seeing Joe Bob Briggs presented on The Last Drive-In recently 
to realize that like, oh, wow, this movie's got a huge fan base and people actually love it. Um, because for a long time, it was like Reanimator and From Beyond. And then this is his third Lovecraft movie, but it just did not have that bigger reputation of those two films. But it has since caught on and people love it. It's Castle Freak. Yes. She made yes. 1995. Um, and it was and went straight to video. That, oh, From Beyond is 1986. It's right after Reanimator, which is 1985. Right, so. so he's done some stuff since then. So Castle Freak kind of, uh, it's, another, it's another pairing with, uh, with Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton. In this one, they play a married couple uh, who inherit a 12th century castle um, that Combs' ancestor left to him. I can't remember the exact details, but um, there's, there's strife in the family. The, um, Combs got into an accident while drunk that killed their five-year-old son. And uh, they're blind. A teenage daughter, Rebecca, is with them. And there's obviously a bad rift between Combs and Crampton when this thing starts that uh, doesn't look like it's going to get mended anytime soon. So you kind of have a sort of shining sort of setup there where it's like this family going into this obviously haunted place because what he doesn't realize is that he's inherited a castle with a castle freak inside of it. This is, and, this is not um, H.P. Lovecraft, though. It, te- it technically is. They say it's based on The Outsider, which oh, is a really? very, yeah, it's a very, very short story about okay. Lovecraft, which is really just about the creature, the, ca- the, the castle freak. Um, okay, because his other H.P. Lovecraft is, is Dagon. Is Sorry. Dagon, yeah. Dagon. Yeah, he came back into Dagon later. Um, but yeah, so it's based on The Outsider, which is a very short story, which is basically just the, the disfigured character, the, the, the monster, realizing what he is because he you know, escapes his cell, his, his dungeon, and goes out and sees all these people who run away and scream. And he finally, it ends with him finally seeing himself in the mirror and realizing that he has been a monster all along. So again, a very loose adaptation as our reanimator and from beyond. Um, but anyway, so this castle freak that lives in the dungeon and is chained to the wall and is, you know, has been horribly treated his entire life gets loose. And so we have this sort of conflicted thing where he clearly is the monster of this movie, but he's someone who also at the same time has been horribly abused his whole life. So you have this really difficult time rooting against him, even though everything he does is disgusting and horrible. It's a, it's a movie that does not feed, you know, just, just feed you all this information and let you know how to feel. It's one that's, you feel very conflicted throughout the whole thing on purpose. You know, it's, yeah. Um, there's a lot of emotions going on in this film and it is, and it is a nasty film. Um, it's not without comedy, but unlike reanimator and from beyond, it is got some really disturbing it's, horror. It's in his it. ugly, grimy horror movie. Yeah. If you don't like the borderline camp of reanimator and from beyond, give this one a shot. Yeah. I feel like I the say. straight up graphic, uh, tough to watch stuff. This is the, his. This is where he really kind of yeah, goes if, all in on. If that. you like unpleasant horror movies that are both um, sort of emotionally and and physically disturbing in some way, the, this is the one. And it's one of his more um, like unadorned films. This is almost this is almost like his like neorealist horror movie in some way. <laughs> it is. It really is totally very different from his early stuff. Um, but also is beautiful because it's, you know, they took the advantage of full moon going over to Europe and 
shooting on all these European vacations. So it's shot in Italy, so it looks great. Wasn't it shot in the same um, castle that they filmed Pit and the Pendulum in? That castle that Charles Band owns that's in a bunch of their his movies? Oh, I'm not sure if it's the same one, but that would make sense. Yeah, um, I, I saw it and thought, uh, this is this is the full moon video castle. I think this is yeah. the castle Charles Band bought to make little puppets fight each other inside of. Makes sense, makes sense. But it's not shot by uh, Mac Ulberg, unfortunately. I think it would have been looked even better if he had shot it, but they used an Italian cinematographer. Can't remember, can't remember his name. But this movie, when I first saw it, has a moment. It's, um, it's, is... it's, uh, it's, it's Volpiani, isn't it? Volpiani, yes. This moment, this movie has a moment that is right out of a nightmare, like the kind of real nightmares, not movie nightmares, but like nightmares that you would have, uh, where yeah. where Crampton and the daughter are trying to hide from this thing. It's you know completely dark. It's the middle of the night. They're being hounded, and they get away from him, and they manage to hide. He comes to the room and leaves the room, and it seems like okay, they're all right, like they've got it, like they just need to get out of here now because he doesn't know, has no idea where they are. So they go out into like the corridor and the daughter slips and lets out a scream. And in the same shot, you see this thing coming out of another room and seeing them and screaming and chasing them. And it's like, I mean, like, like, I mean, it's not a cat scare, you know, it's not some cheap yeah. gimmick that so many horror movies, uh, any other director would shoot this like with him coming out, like, Oh, he knew he was there all along. Ah, this is shot. Like, no, he's a real thing that exists that's like looking for them in another room. And now when it knows where they are, it's coming for them. And it is a horrific, horrific moment. Just chills you to the bone. And I'm not the kind of guy who sees horror movies and thinks like, Ooh, I got the shivers. But like that, wow. Yeah. That was just such a smart shot. Such a well-composed and conceptual idea. Yeah. And I, you've, you've mentioned this to me before, how you it reminds you of a nightmare, and I think that's really true. And when I try and think of movies that remind me of actual nightmares I've had, it's that shot and Los Ovidados, the like slow motion chicken one. Hmm. Th- those are like the only two that I can ever think <laughs> of where nightmares actually resemble real life nightmares. Although it's happening in the reality of this film, it's not a nightmare sequence in there. It's not a dream. Right. Sequence yeah, because a standard horror film, shooting it with the cat scare, however they were going to do it, you, you, you can see the machinations behind it. You can see the artistry. And so, you know, it's something that was tailored, that was made to present this as like, no, this is a real thing. This, this terror is not going to go away. Yeah. It's not something that we are presenting. It's something that just lives in this world of this movie. Yeah. And that's why I made Very the joke effective. about it being his his neorealist horror film in some way. <laughs> there's there's almost uh, all the words that you could use to describe it, like a, a cinema verite, direct cinema. All of this is too much. That's, that's going overboard to describe the style of it. Um, but it does have, it feels it's more in, in the universe of like medium cool than it is in the, the from beyond universe in some way. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's interesting about it is that it, it does have a, um, a quality about it where it is uh, working to imitate reality and the, both the way it is conceived, shot, edited, acted, uh, that makes it unsettling. And I think by having a, a plot that's obviously um, unrealistic, um, to treat it so realistically gives it a really unsettling quality. It gives it a really nightmarish quality. 
Absolutely. And when you consider From Beyond so smartly plays with the conventions of horror movies that it's like giddily having fun with how many times it's going to be like, why would they restart the resonator? You idiots. Why would they do that? Yeah. It just like plays on that audience expectation and just has fun with all these conventions. Castle Freak, on the other hand, feels like, no, if I wanted to make like a fucking horror movie that was actually going to scare the bejesus out of people, like this is it. Like this is, yeah. I'm not going to fool around with this one. I could all. do it. Here it is. Yeah. I could do, yeah, it would be no no sweat off my back. So if everyone thought that the, the comedy in Reanimator and From Beyond was an accident, yeah. no, here, here's a movie I made without any comedy. Or was covering up for something, you know. Yeah. You know, something a lack lacking. of ability, a lack of ideas, or right. a simple, you know, uh, disinterest in scares. Mm-hmm. That's exactly. a great. That's a great choice for essential viewing. Yeah, I think you, you know, we both picked horror movies after talking about how he's not necessarily a horror director, but I think if you watch those two, they're such powerfully effective movies that you'll understand why people think of him as being a horror director. I mean, those are both blunt force impact kind of movies. Those are both unforgettable horror movie experiences. Yeah, and Castle Freak feels more like Edmund or King of Ants or um, Stuck than it does. Yeah, stylistically. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Where it's, it points to where he's headed in the second half of his career. What is your choice for a movie, a Stuart Gordon movie that has personal meaning for you? What's your personal choice? Without a doubt, it's the wonderful ice cream suit. Yeah. I love this movie. I loved it the first time I saw it. I love it more every time. Another I college see it. story. We're yeah. No college stories. Yeah, that was when we were living in White Plains and the video store across the street, we would rent whatever the new movies were. And the weirdest things would pop up, stuff that we completely didn't miss completely, you know, and it, whatever no for a reason. Yeah. Just it was a mom and pop under the video cultural... store and their, their like buying schedule was not, you didn't walk in and they had 50 copies of Independence Day or whatever. Deep Impact. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it was, yeah. they would have weird, they'd have three copies of Deep Impact and six movies you had not heard of. Mm-hmm. Exactly. They had a great, <laughs> great release there at that, that store. So Wonderful Ice Cream Suit was one of them. And it was like, oh, this is interesting. It says Ray Bradbury on the cover. I love Ray Bradbury. I've never heard of this before. And then to see that it was directed by Stuart Gordon was like, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> totally took us, yeah, totally took us by surprise. And what it is, is actually an adaptation of a play that Ray Bradbury had written and produced himself through his theater company in the early 70s, which after that, uh, Gordon, with his the, uh, theatrical company, uh, picked it up, found out about it, and they performed it with uh, cast that included Joe Montagna in the the role in the lead role. Yeah, um, so Joe Montagna. Montagna. Yep. So they had done this film. Uh, they they'd done this story already on stage successfully in Chicago in the seventies, and so Gordon, at this point in his career in the nineties, decided he wanted to take it the next step and make it into a film. Uh, the original concept was they would actually do an animated version of it for Disney. Uh, so he and Bradbury went to Disney and pitched this idea. Eventually they decided not to go with the animated idea and they just did it as a small film, but he recast Joe Montana. For, <laughs> am I not saying it right? You're close enough. Joe Montana. <laughs> Joey M. Uh, yeah. Recast him in the lead role after all those years. Um, cast Clifton Collins Jr., Edward James Almost. He's a Morales, got a great cast uh, as these uh, five guys uh, living in the Boyle Heights district of East Los Angeles who are all down their luck and decide to pull together to buy this brilliant white suit that they are all going to share 
uh, and then go out it's, in the world. It's off white. It's ice cream colored. It's ice cream white, but it is a beautiful glowing white at the same time, the way that they shoot it in this film. Yeah. Um, but they, they decide they're all going to buy the suit to share. And the film uh, depicts their first night with the suit. They're all going to spend one hour in the suit. They're going to go out and spend an hour in the suit and then come back and switch the suit up to another person. It is a beautiful, magical, funny, funny film that has, is just not cynical at all. It just has, you know, it's, it's smart, but it's not, it's not sentimental, but it's, you know, it's great. It has great emotion to it. Yeah. I can't imagine anyone seeing this film and not being, having their pants charmed off and of it's because like, it is just it's beautiful. It's broad and family friendly without being dumb and pandering to like, this is like a family movie deep down in this essence, you know? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's, could be a family film. I think it could be a film that you just enjoy as a comedy. Yeah. There really are lots of different ways to enjoy this movie and practically no ways to hate it. I mean, I think it's terrific and I have never understood why it doesn't have a bigger audience. Yeah. One of the things, you know, with social media, seeing all the tributes to him coming up is that a lot of people are jumping up and saying, I love wonderful ice cream suit, which is terrific because it really has not gotten first. It got, you know, buried by Disney, um, go, practically going straight to video. And then the second time he sort of had a horrible experience with Disney after he's some of more deep cut people know that he's credited along with his, um, reanimator uh producer brian yuzna as a screenwriter on honey i shrunk the kids originally called the teeny weenies had such a bad experience i remember reading him talking about it he was apparently getting just like explosive nosebleeds in the process of developing honey i shrunk the kids uh before he could um uh got taken off the project and it was ultimately uh directed by uh Joe Johnston. Joe Johnston. Yeah, mm-hmm. ended up doing it. And it was just apparently a horrible experience. And then he went back to Disney because the story is Bradbury had connections at Disney, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and Palace was Roy Disney. Yes. And again, just got, got boned by them in some way. Yeah, big time. Um, apparently nobody else at the studio really cared about the project. Uh, and then after Roy left uh, Disney... Roy Disney left, then there was no, there were no cheerleaders or supporters whatsoever. So it practically got buried. Yeah, and then it got buried. It didn't get a theatrical release, and it got buried on the home video release. This was not a movie you saw in every single store. This was something that people really hadn't heard of for a very long time. This is a movie I would mention to people, and they wouldn't have heard of it. And it would get like a laugh when you're like, it's this very sweet, funny Ray Bradbury story directed from the director of Reanimator. And they go, ha, ha, ha. Be like, no, it's actually, it's actually great. It's super low budget, but the whole cast is great. Everybody works wonders with it. Uh, you eat the spicy taco. You know what I'm saying? This is the movie that you got to do that with. And one of my worst experiences programming uh, that movie theater was when I scheduled, I programmed this for the family film. We would do weekend matinees at 12 noon and show a family movie on Saturday and Sunday, each weekend, a different movie. And I programmed this for it. And like the fucking dipshit 
kids who worked at the theater. They weren't kids. They were just like two years younger than me. All were like making fun of this movie to my face. Like, why would you program this? Ah, wonderful ice cream suit. And I was like, Jesus Christ, I hate everybody <laughs> here. And who knows what happened to those people? Maybe they programmed the theater to this day and... You know, I'm sure they're out there in the world. I'm sure they've grown up to be just like super dudes with the notorious <laughs> great taste. But um, yeah, I fucking hated that. This was a movie that I felt like I would tell people to see and they would shut it down. Just there was no, that's interesting. It was like, absolutely not. And there was a lot of like, so it's just Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. And it's like, Jesus Christ, <laughs> stop everyone. <laughs> so if it is getting some kind of a reputation now, that's really heartening. <laughs> I, I hope that's the case. I hope that it gets more in front of more eyes, you know, now. I think uh, I, I went to, to meet um, uh, Edward James almost at a convention to get him to sign the poster. And he was, you know, kind of deciding all the Battlestar Galactica stuff, you know. Yeah. And I, this has never happened to me when I've encountered a celebrity before. When I put that poster out in front of him, he lit up. He was just so happy to see the poster for this movie. Yeah. And just wanted to talk about it. You know, just want to sit there and tell me every story about it and how much it meant to him and how much he loved doing this film. And that's what that's the reason that I later contacted Stuart Gordon to write an article about it because I knew like this is really a special film and the people who made it really love it. And sure enough, when I talked to Stuart Gordon about it, he had nothing but, you know, fantastic things to say about working with these actors and with Brad Barry and doing this film and getting it done. And obviously the only negative was, you know, the treatment by the studio afterwards. But, you know, he clearly was really proud of this film and loved it. And that just made me love it even more. And I was going to say, if you want to know more about this film, John wrote an excellent comprehensive article on the history of its production with interviews with um, uh, Gordon and a lot of other people involved in the production. And it's great. It's on our website. We should tweet that out, shouldn't we, John? So people can can get on it. And um, it's it's read that article, see this movie. And, you know, if you like Gordon for totally different unrelated reasons, I, I think you'd have to have a pretty hard heart to not like this one under any circumstances, even if it seems way outside of what is interesting about Stuart Gordon to you. Watch this movie. My personal pick is Stuck, his final film from 2007. Love which, it. Um, yes, I... Love this movie. It's a good movie. Just to start, it's uh, Mina uh, Suvari and Stephen Ray. Um, it's based on a true story of when a woman hit a guy with her car and he got stuck in the windshield and she just panicked, drove him home, left him stuck in her windshield in his garage and let him bleed to death and die, right? That this was a true story that happened and then they made a movie out of it. And this is a incredibly dark comedy, essentially, that this is a really, really- You don't say. <laughs> pitch black. Well, but it's, it's, there can be a serious version of this and a harrowing version of this. And this is a- very, very darkly funny movie. This is as dark as comedy gets. And um, it's a movie that's fundamentally one of the best movies. And I was thinking about this today when we were talking about what we were going to do tonight. That's about 
narcissism and selfishness and selfishness and narcissism aren't portrayed a lot on screen. And if they are, it's normally like a side or a one note character. This is a movie that is made basically half if not, if she's not the main character, then she's the second lead alongside Stephen Ray, um, who is incredibly selfish. And she's driven by a selfishness that is almost bottomless. And you don't get to necessarily see that thematically explored in a lot of movies, even when people are doing selfish things in movies um, and digging deep holes for themselves. It's a little bit of a um, a subtext, whereas this is just straight text with this film, is that <laughs> some people really are so deeply caught up in themselves that they can't understand what they have to do, what the right thing is outside of themselves at all. And it's a it's it's a great movie. Um, I had a great experience seeing it at the Toronto International Film Festival. Uh, I believe it premiered there. Is that where it premiered? Um, and um, no, it was. It must have played other places before that. I don't want to say that it premiered there. And I saw it at the Toronto International Film Festival, and we saw it together. And it was at most of the press and industry screenings at TIFF are like in one theater. Back in those days, there were essentially two theaters, the Cineplex Odeon, and then the one right down the street that I can't remember the name of right now. And it was those two theaters you'd watch, uh, 99% of the movies in these two theaters, most of them in the Cineplex Odeon. Now it's in that other one downtown. What's that one called, John? It's eluding me. Uh, what, the Scotiabank? The Scotiabank. That's where the majority of them are and a few at the light box. Um, this screened in some theater where in all of my years going to the film festival, you know, 14, 15 years going to TIFF, I only saw one other movie in this theater and I cannot remember where it was for the life of me. So it was like a strange experience to go over to this other theater for a midnight movie and see it. It was almost like a, a gymnasium. It was not like a nice movie theater compared to a lot of the others. And the only other um, film I saw there was uh, Ryuhei Kitamura's No One Lives, the WWE Studios serial killer action movie and, and all my years there. And that was several years later. That was probably, you know, four or five years later. And so like my only, it's a very like, special memory to see this movie again, like what you were describing with From Beyond, where it just played so well with the audience where that theater was just rocking and laughing and everybody had that audience synergy together of loving what they were seeing. And the same thing too, where it was a bunch of um, industry people who uh, I'm not sure were necessarily Stuart Gordon aficionados. And so it was the same thing where them sort of testing the water and realizing, oh, this is funny. I'm allowed to laugh at this. And then when they got on its wavelength, we're like, this is incredibly fucking funny and upsetting and unpredictable. And it was just one of the great audiences experiences I've had in my life. It was just such, it was so much fun to see that movie. And I don't know how well you remember the screening, but it was just, it was great. 
it was a great experience. And oh, I remember it extremely well. Yeah, it was a fantastic, one of the best TIFF screenings I've ever been to. And I uh, just looked it up, by the way. It premiered at Fantasy Film Festival in Germany in August of that year. Okay. But the, the TIFF screening was apparently the second. Okay, so very nearby. So very North American nearby. premiere for sure. But I was just going to say, you know, it's a rare opportunity to see Stuart Gordon movies in the theater. And to get to see his last one in the theater with the big audience when it came out was a really, really great experience. You know, I, I saw a few of his other films in repertory context since then, but even now it's not like it, you're going to have a chance to see King of the Ants or, or Robot Jocks in a theater. They just don't screen a lot in that way. Right. And so seeing his last movie in the theater, I'm just really thankful I had that experience to have like a, a, a theatrical commune with a filmmaker I really, really loved. Um, and, and to have that and to share it with an audience and to have him win them over in some way, to have that experience of an artist I love winning everybody else over too. Yeah, well put. Yeah, it's a great experience. This is a film too that uh, finds its comedy and just the escalation of the situation where it's something that, you know, whatever she does, it just makes it worse. You know, like every, everything she does that she thinks is going to make this problem go away just escalates things to like a, a to a frantic frenzy by yeah the end of and it. every incremental movement he makes towards saving himself gets undone by her harebrained reactions <laughs> exactly sort of the story of a man uh in a survival movie and the thing he has to survive is irrationality that is that's the, it's not a disease it's not being on a desert island it's not a zombie apocalypse it's irrationality is the thing he must survive in the survival horror comedy yeah it is uh one of the funniest lines i remember is that she screams at him why are you doing this to me yes <laughs> as he's impaled on her windshield down. just hilarious Steve, smart and and i think mina sawabi even was a producer on the film, right? Or she had a hand in it getting made. Yeah, she's yeah. great in it. She is, uh, I think, to a lot of people, just a one-hit wonder from American Beauty. And I think she was always miscast in, like, pretty blonde ingenue roles. And you see her in this movie, and you see her with an edge, and it feels like a much more natural screen persona for her. Mm -hmm. You know, that she she got sort of cast in those those sort of you know gross teen blonde lolita roles that i think didn't fit well on her that when they tried to transition her to other things along those lines you know like mature tasteful versions of that stuff it it didn't take and seeing her with a you know uh with dark hair and cornrows uh and having a sort of um very knowing performance of a certain kind of person. Um, I think she's phenomenal in it. I think she's really, re she more than holds her own. She's, she's this, if she wasn't famous already, this would have been a star making um, uh, performance for her. And I think that, I think that might've been better for her career if this had been the thing that made her a star and not American beauty. Yeah. Just the fact that she, you know, 
back this film that she wanted a great filmmaker to be at the helm you know that she wanted like a a, a challenging part like to be taken seriously as an actress is very you know impressive obviously yes yes and how do you want to for this last one for our our wild cards for our offbeat picks for our overlooked gems for our what's another word for this our, the little our crazies loved. yeah <laughs> um, um well it's funny because i would say you know throughout but, his career i feel like almost every film he made is under under underseen and under appreciated yeah you I can feel like and pick anything for it the christopher lamb bear film fortress yeah. is you know it's i'm not gonna pick that one but it's a wonderful it's perfectly uh fun you know it's a yeah crazy well-made future sci-fi movie yeah and, and th- that's the kind of thing that you kind of assume he kind of took for the paycheck but he brought his all to it and it is as good as any like you know hollywood a-list sci-fi action movie of that time yeah if not better Rockers is another one in that vein of absolutely it it looks like it should be a cheese ball nothing and it's called space truckers with steven dorf and dennis hopper you know (laughs) um but it's like it's a really likable uh low-key um sci-fi movie its tone is very hard to describe it's somewhere between uh it's it's almost like what if you put like like convoy or you know white line fever into a charles band movie you know yeah that there's when, something uh, about just guys in their vehicles but doing up to no good skirting the law but they're good guys you know yeah. kind of thing when I guessed it on uh, Brian Sauer's podcast, Just the Disc, we were talking about Road Games, the 1981 Richard Franklin film about uh, yeah. Stacey Keach and his truck in the Outback. He wanted me to pair it with a, a movie that I think would go well with it. And I really wanted to say Space Truckers. I, you know, just, <laughs> just, just, for, just for an opportunity to get that out there, you know, to, to mention the, the film Space Truckers for people to be aware of it. Unfortunately, he said, whatever I picked had to be on Blu-ray because it obviously is a... Uh, oh. A com- is, is a, a podcast about discs, right? About uh, so Space yeah. Truckers has not been released on Blu-ray in North America yet, of course. So I didn't get to, to name drop it then. But yeah, I absolutely love that film. It's a hoot. Yeah, and it's may and it's also got something of a swashbuckler story structure to it. It's it's right up your and eyes alley, obviously, in yeah. a lot of ways. Um, not one of his best, but an interesting one. Even even then, I probably would not have seen it had you know, he not directed it. I don't, I can't imagine it ever crossing yeah. my, my radar. If it weren't a Stuart Gordon movie, you know, I would see anything by him at that time or any time. You know? So let me, let me pull my wild card up then. Let me get to my wild card. Uh, and my official pick is the pit and the pendulum, um, which is uh, based on uh, Edgar Allan Poe. It's a sort of a mashup of two Edgar Allan Poe stories, the pit and the pendulum and the cask of Amontillado, uh, two of his very fo- uh, very most famous uh, stories if you know anything about if you if you name can only name five Edgar Allan Poe short stories these are probably two of those five I would say <laughs> yeah. uh, Edgar Allan Poe works of any kind um, and it's great uh, what makes this movie great is Lance Henriksen stars in it 
It's from 1991. So it's uh, at a period in Lance Henriksen's career where he's still in sort of lesser known character actor type roles. And he is so good in it. He is so committed to this performance and has a psychotic intensity uh, playing uh, the Inquisitor uh, Torquemada. Um, and he's great. He's great. I don't know what to say about it beyond that. You know, it's a story, uh, you know, it's about torture and punishment and revenge. Um, you know, all of those things that you would think it would be about based on those two uh, short stories. And Lance Henriksen is, has a just, uh, uh, you know, steely-eyed settlessness that is hard to match. And it is one of the full moon video uh, uh, productions, which are a little cheaper than his other stuff. Full moon, I think, is synonymous with sort of uh, horror movies that look cheap and you can see the seams. I think if you had to define their brand, that would be it uh, beyond tiny puppets fighting. And But he really works with it. He really creates in a very limited amount of resources and space something very powerful and effective. It's a believable world that he creates on almost no budget whatsoever. And he gets an incredible performance out of Lance Henriksen, um, which is, uh, which is great. And it also has, you know, um, Oliver Reed shows up in a small role, uh, doing the, the most Oliver Reed, performance quote unquote performance imaginable it appears to be that oliver reed wandered onto set and was just oliver reed in front of the cameras but that's taking something away from oliver reed it's a great performance by oliver reed too it's naturalistic and larger than life and has those voracious lusts and appetites you would uh, associate with oliver reed and jeffrey combs turns up again as well it's a really um uh well-performed, well-put-together movie where they're clearly uh, working on, on a shoestring budget for this kind of thing. Yeah, he, um, he, has, he has a great anecdote, too, about Oliver Reed that uh, we should tweet out at some point because it's terrific. I think it's online somewhere. Um, but uh, this is a film where he, get, you know, he recognizes what Henriksen can do. And just lets him go nuts. Uh, I don't want to offend, you know, fans of shitty horror movies out there, but this is the only Lance Henriksen starring film that is worth watching. You know, like <laughs> it's a film where he realizes he can he can stake the whole movie on this performance, and because Henriksen is that good, you know, yeah. like you just let him play the role the way he wants to, and kind of set your tone by the by his performance. You're going to come up with something like Pit and the Pendulum, which. I don't know if you wanted to say like from beyond is the masterpiece. Like what's the second masterpiece. I usually say pit and the pendulum is, is in the running because it, it really is just a incredibly well-made and surprising movie. Yes. And it's very, it's one of the great Poe movies. I think you can compare it to the Corman Poe films. I think it's at least on that level. 
uh, of quality and uh, and certainly intensity. And oh, when, when I was talking about the cast, I want to give a shout out to uh, to Tom Towles. As Tom well. Towles, yeah, great Tom Towles as uh, played Otis and Henry of a Portrait of a Serial Killer and the lead in The Borrower. And uh, he again, like Ken Foree, he's a horror icon in some ways who wasn't given much to do throughout his career. And yeah. so it's great to to see him turn up in this film as well. Basically, everybody on screen in this movie are people you want on screen in your movies. He doesn't he doesn't waste time putting people on screen that you don't want to see. Yeah, I mean, I mean that Gordon just knew that he got great performances out of actors who are always given, you know, just minor roles in movies that just are never utilized the way they yeah. should be. And I think and that this speaks is the, to his the background pit, as a as a theater the epitome of it, if you will. Oh, oh. but this be that that his talent with actors speaks to his theater background. Oh, absolutely. I think, I think that his, his films always feel very well constructed in terms of the performances and the staging of them always feel like he's worked with his actors. You don't feel like people are just showing up and they're throwing it together and nobody's on the same page. Uh, however, whatever his process was and i don't know what his process was for developing or working with these films um maybe he just cast them all out perfectly and let everybody do their thing but he he gets uh good work uh out of these movies it's it's sort of an a remarkable quality of performance for the uh, you know small budgets that these film had one two million dollar type budgets for a lot of these movies Without a doubt, it was definitely and, one of his strengths. And John, I agree this might be his second masterpiece. I would go with Stuck as his second if I mm-hmm. picked a second place. Or uh, there's a few more, but I would before I talk about them, what is your wild card pick? Yeah, my wild card pick uh, is another one that I would say is in the running for one of his very top films. Um, it's probably the cheapest film he ever made. I mean, it doesn't look like much, but yeah. uh, it, it looks very shoestring. Um, it's just a really, really intense and bizarre story. Uh, I didn't know what to think of this movie the first time I watched it. It took several viewings for me to really get into it, but it's King of the Ants, yeah, which is a movie he made in uh, 2003, uh, which is from a novel by uh, Charlie Hickson, who is a, a British writer who mostly does like YA books. And uh, he does like a uh, young James Bond series, which is, much much better than you would ever give a, is it you like ever based assume. on the cartoon no it's not based on james oh. bond jr uh it's just like a whole new series of you know bond is a younger man and uh they're surprisingly engaging and really really huh. fun um but this is a film and again you have an actor who believed in the film and helped back it and got it made and in this case it's not mina suave it is george went of cheers fame is the one <laughs> who really wanted king of the ants to get made which is Number one, kind of shocking, and number two, kind of awesome. You know, it really makes you appreciate yeah. the went a lot more than you ever thought you would. Um, but this is a, He's a that's got to be the Chicago connection, right? With him, I'm sure they probably did some theater and stuff together. Yeah, wouldn't surprise me. Um, and it wouldn't be surprised me that he's the one who got Gordon on the movie, which was scripted by Hickson. Uh, and this is a movie about a guy who is literally a nobody, he's just some schmo who, um, picks up jobs, odd jobs here and there whenever he can. In this particular scenario, he's painting houses in suburban Los Angeles. He's approached 
by Daniel Baldwin, who is the shady real estate developer. He is having trouble, legal trouble, with an attorney who's played by Ron Livingston from Office Space. So in a night of drunkenness, Daniel Baldwin talks to this guy whose name is Sean in the movie. He's played by uh, Chris McKenna. He says, I want you to go, how much money would it take to kill this guy? And just off the top of his head, Sean says, they, they, come, up, they, they come up on this weird pact to, that's going to be $13,000 to kill this guy, which Sean goes out and he does. And, and as you would imagine, a very clumsy and realistic way, the way you would really imagine a person who is not a professional killer, who has never murdered someone before, would approach just randomly coming into someone's house and killing them. It's very ugly and it's very, very realistic. Uh, and from that point on, things just spiral, you know, where it turns out that, well, while he was drunk, maybe Daniel Baldwin didn't, wasn't 100% serious about this deal, that he would yeah. want this guy who he's been associated with murdered all of a sudden. And so they got to get rid of Sean. So Sean is taken to this, uh, this empty house and he's tortured horribly. And the movie just from that point on takes completely unexpected steps. You're just sitting there wondering, where is this going? Because it becomes so upsetting. But at the same time, you cannot wait to find out what's, what's up this movie's sleeve. It is constantly surprising. Um, and it is a really interesting film just about inherent violence. You know, a lot of movies like take that as their theme and we kind of like think about going back to Peck and Paul and things like that. But this is a film that really understands once violence, you know, comes out in somebody, how it just can't be put back into a box. Um, when I talked to Stuart Gordon, just on, on the side, I was talking to him about this, just telling him how much I love this film. And I said, I think it's a better version of a history of violence, the David Cronenberg movie. Huh. And, he, and he was oh, like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, huh, yeah, I can see where the two would be connected. Uh, because I really, it's, it's so much more understandable in this film, this idea of, you know, someone who can bring violence out and then put it back in the box and how that's just not the way the world works. So again, like you said earlier, it's not really a horror movie, even though it has some of the most graphic and disturbing scenes uh, of his career in, in any movie, really. It has an, the intensity of a horror movie. Yeah, without a doubt. So, and I, would, and I put it on my list of the, my favorite horror movies of the decade because it really does have that level of intensity. Um, and it's not a movie that I would recommend to just anybody. Yeah. But it's a movie that if you can, can handle this kind of film, you absolutely have to see it. And just to speak to Stuart Gordon's career, he never had like uh, that breakthrough where he got into the studio system in some way and had a run of big movies and like his career was made in some way. He was always on the outside his whole career. You know, Stuart Gordon movies were never events. They would come out at random. And this is a movie that I picked up at the video store, not because I saw, oh, it's the new Stuart Gordon movie. I just said, oh, I knew a direct video Kari Wurr movie. Huh, that's of that's of interest to Chris Funderburg. Let me see what she's up to. Holy shit, a new Stuart Gordon movie? Like even somebody who would be excited for a new Stuart Gordon movie had no idea this was about to drop and be out there in the world. I saw it because, you know, one of the greatest actresses of our generation was in it. The sexy gypsy from Thinner, the <laughs> woman from Remote Control. You know, you all know Kari were star of many direct-to-video softcore movies. Just don't um, start singing the remote control theme song. <laughs> I'll start singing the sliders theme song. You don't watch out for me. Be Beastmaster um, 2's Carrie War. 
Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, it never occurred to me that her name is pronounced Carrie. I always went with Kari because Kari. If there's only one. R- I don't know. I've never heard it said out loud. <laughs> um, only in my fantasies is it whispered sweetly. And, uh, and I saw it and it's great. And it's like so many Stuart Gordon movies, you're watching it and you just go, this is great. How come nobody knows about this? This is great. How come this has no profile? And I, I agree with you that this could easily be one of his other masterpieces. And like you say, it's clearly made for no money. Of all of his movies, I think this is the one that sort of um, the look of it suffers from having no budget more than mm-hmm. anything else. There's a few times where you're like, oh, I bet he wishes he had that shot back, you know? Yeah. Um, or I bet they wish they had more time to film that. But it's not enough to to break the spell of this movie, which does have like a grueling intensity to it. And sort of that that turn of the screws, just thumb screws getting turned down on you the way a great uh, horror fiction does, crime fiction, I would say, does. That, that, that it has that sort of criminals fucking things up over and over feel to it. And it, and it has that in common with stock. It has a similar sort of uh, compression uh, of your feelings, compression of intensity that stuck has and is in, is in the same vein as stuck. Yeah, and a yeah, and just a series of events that just becomes worse and worse <laughs> as it gets to the end, where simple sense and logic would have prevented it from happening. It's but as funny. It is, yeah. It's just complete destruction and uh, terror by the end of the film. We're, I feel like we're so close to have mentioned having mentioned all of his movies that we should throw in like dolls. Also interesting. One great <laughs> shot. And, you know, Edmund, his David Mamet adaptation starring William H. Macy, which is like a, a one crazy night movie, only in this case, it's like nocturnal odyssey. It has more in common with Mike Lee's Naked than it does with like, I don't know, Miracle Mile or something. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a nice businessman un- has a horrible night in the big city well worst businessman ever i mean it's an unblinking portrait of a complete asshole like a complete yes scumbag yes um similar then, to stuck in that way <laughs> yeah kind of at this kind of getting his comeuppance at, at, you know on one end but also what's happened to him is so horrible that you can't help but feel a little sympathy for him even though he's kind of shown himself to be this bigoted horrible piece of shit yeah but it's, uh, and a great, great performance by William Macy in that. Yeah, yeah, and Dagon, his his final uh, H.P. Lovecraft movie, another great uh, castle-bound horror film by him. And and yeah, I think Dagen's, that's, yeah, I think Just we as have, good. I think we have touched on them all at that point. Right. Unless we want to also no Daughter of Darkness, his television film that he made oh, with uh, well, yeah. Mia Sara and Anthony Perkins is also very good. Yes, and he did uh, two of the the best uh, Masters of Horror episodes as well. I think Dreams in the Witch House is probably the very best of all the Masters of Horror. Do you agree with that? It's up there. It's uh, yeah, three. it's yeah. Oh, without a doubt, top three. I think uh, it's either that or Argento's Jennifer. I think in terms yeah. of just like the most successful of all of them, and then Dante's Screwfly Solution yeah, is I'm also really say good. Screwfly, I like. Yeah, more. but you're yeah, right. But, but yeah, Dreams in the Witch House is, and Dagon are everybody as good as you know any of the horror films he made. Yeah, I feel and like Dreams Dagen, in the Witch House is another H.P. Lovecraft. He, yeah, he obviously has a heavy Lovecraft association. I feel with uh, Dagon, the main problem is that 
it's not Jeffrey Combs. Like the, the main guy is obviously supposed to be <laughs> yes. Jeffrey Combs and you just can't get over the fact that it's not him, but yeah, it's, uh, that it's like, but it's a, it's a really name. cool, some, innovative some, film. Some Spanish guy you've never Some really heard. great creature effects, probably the best makeup effects in any of his films. Yes, the creature is awesome looking. If you yeah. like creature features, go for Dagon. Absolutely. And the Black Cat, the other Masters of Horror that he did with Combs is uh, great. Combs' is, uh, Poe is Edgar Allan Poe is obviously yes. terrific, yes, as you would imagine. Another Poe another <laughs> po film, more Jeffrey Combs. And uh, that, I think, is is... All we have to say for today, I think we just wanted to have a remembrance of a filmmaker we really loved and really admired and whose work um, just resonated with me and you in a very specific way that that we were just, he stimulated our uh, pineal glands, right? <laughs> Every time, absolutely. And uh, and he's he just, the Stuart Gordon resonator just really was on our frequency and caused us to see some crazy shit. I think that, uh, that, that's, that that's really true, that there was just something that he really uh, brought out in me as an audience member and that you and I always really shared. And, you know, I just wanted to, to remember him a little bit and, and talk about how much I loved his work. He's I'm a castle freak for his films. It's I'm <laughs> going to be, I'm going to be in denial for a while that he's no longer with us and doing his thing. And I know he loved doing it and never had to compromise and did things his own way and always, made a good movie he never made a stinker i mean i'm not as huge a robot jo- robot jocks fan as most people are but um but if, if that's, that's if that's his one. worst one then you know yeah you're i mean definitely doing something right. dolls is his worst one i'll just mention real quick that he also has screenwriting credits on abel ferrara's version of body snatchers and uh, a really good brian yesna film called the dentist which is yes. much better than you would expect it to be yes one of a really great uh <laughs> gimmicky uh, you know, sort of log line, crazy dentist doing terrible things to your mouth. And then it's a very, very enjoyable version of that. Yeah. And like Fun I said, movie. You know, see From Beyond, uh, see Castle Freak, and obviously see Reanimator. Reanimator is such a beautiful film. Love it. Final it's thoughts. It's a good remembrance. Final thoughts. Uh, see Stuart Gordon films. I'm going to continue seeing them. Uh, and thank you, Stuart Gordon, for a wonderful career and just for all the fun so much fun yeah much love to his family uh to his wife who we haven't talked about much who was an actress carolyn burdick gordon yeah there from the beginning who's in a lot of his films uh, apparently has a, a couple of kids and just positive vibes love energy you know if there is some alternate dimension of feeling around us you know i hope it it opens up for us and just let some of the energy that Stuart Gordon and the universe uh, put out into the universe come back to them. All of that greatness that he put out there, you know, just get repaid to the universe somehow. 